Well, good morning. Great to see you all here on this beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, if you've got your Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite you to open them to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Uh, over the past several weeks, if you've been around, you know this, we've been taking some time looking at some of the great stories that Jesus told. Uh, some, they're called parables, and so we've been looking at these parables. Not all of them, we're not going to have time to get through all of them, but uh, this morning we're going to continue with one that uh, this is an interesting one. Honestly, uh, it's kind of a complex parable. There is a whole bunch of different things that are taking place within it. Uh, there are some things that Jesus talks about in this particular parable that are kind of hard to understand. And so I was thinking this past week, the best way to kind of attack this, and I think uh, the best thing to do is for us to just kind of take it verse by verse and just unpack each verse a little bit. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So uh, Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to begin reading with verse 22. Matthew 12, verse 22. Matthew writes this. He says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, Jesus. And Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. All right, so this story begins with a demon-possessed man brought to Jesus. And uh, right out of the chute, for us, you know, 21st century Christians in our culture, especially here in North America, this is probably kind of a, a foreign concept for us. I'm guessing that uh, most of us have probably never experienced anything like this. In fact, uh, as I think back in my entire lifetime, I can think of maybe two instances where I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was dealing with somebody who had been demonized. Uh, one time was when I was in Africa a number of years ago. I think I've shared that story before. And another time was way before that. I was dealing with a young man who had been involved in witchcraft and Satanism and all kinds of things like that. And so most of us have never experienced anything like this. And so it's weird for us. But the truth is, it wasn't weird for the people in Jesus' day. We see this all throughout Scripture that they seemed, for whatever reason, to experience this more or at least recognize demonic activity more than we do in our culture. And we'll, we'll kind of save that for another day. I'm not going to fall down that hole today because we could spend a bunch of time there and we'll save it for another time. But the bottom line here is this, is that this story begins by revealing to us that there is indeed a realm beyond the physical, that there is a spiritual realm. And this spiritual realm actually has an impact on the physical. It impacts our lives. We were impacted not just by the physical things that happen in our lives, but the spiritual things that take place. And one of the great takeaways from this story is that Jesus demonstrates that he has authority over all of it. Doesn't matter whether it's physical or spiritual, Jesus has authority over all. Uh, Jesus, he, he not only delivers this man from the demon, but we're told that he also heals and restores him physically, which, again, this is not unusual for Jesus. This is why the crowds are following Jesus. We've talked about this a bunch over the past several weeks, but wherever Jesus goes, a crowd shows up. Because they, they recognize that there's something about this Jesus that, that is beautiful. 
Jesus, wherever he goes, he meets both the physical and the spiritual. Jesus, um, he heals people of their infirmities. Jesus, he feeds hungry people. He pays attention to those who the rest of society tends to look down on. He, he delivers people. In this case, he delivers somebody from demonic oppression. So, in other words, wherever Jesus went, he brought beauty and blessing to the people who he encountered. Jesus was all about beauty and blessing and bringing that into our lives. Now, it's unfortunate because uh, we live in a culture where in many circles the title Christian has somehow become a negative thing, right? There are a lot of circles where the, they hear the word, you know, people hear that title Christian and the thoughts that go through their minds are not positive thoughts. You know, there are some places where they hear the word Christian, people hear the word Christian and they think of, um, you know, hypocrites, or judgmental, or narrow-minded, or even unkind. And the truth is, unfortunately, and we just have to deal with this, that there are a whole lot of people under the banner of Christianity who have done a whole lot of things to rightfully earn that reputation. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I love what's happening here. It is because what you see here is that Christianity, when it follows Jesus right, that when Christianity follows Jesus right, it always produces beauty. It always blesses people. It always produces beauty. In fact, if it doesn't produce blessing and beauty, it isn't Jesus. Are you with me? All right. So, um, you know, true Christianity is not hypocritical, it's not judgmental, it's not unkind. Instead, true Christianity, modeled by Jesus, cares about things like justice and mercy and love and compassion and transformation and healing and goodness. That's the kind of church we ought to strive to be, right? We, we want to be people like that. And so here's Jesus. He does this beautiful thing. And I, and I want you to look at what the impact is. In verse 23, Matthew says that Jesus does this beautiful thing, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Which, which the title son of David was a, a royal messianic title. And to the Jews, the Messiah, when he came, they believed that the Messiah was going to set everything right. That he was going to take everything that was wrong in the world and he was going to make it all right. And he would bring peace and he would bring healing and he would bring restoration and he would bring beauty and he would bring blessing. And he would be the savior of the world. This is who the Messiah would be. And so there's this whole group of people that when they see this beautiful thing that Jesus does, they are amazed and they begin to put their faith and trust in him that he just might be the Messiah. Now, this is the way it was for a bunch of us, right? A bunch of you, when you encountered Jesus, this is what happened. You were amazed. You saw the goodness and the beauty and the blessing of Jesus. And you were like, that's what I want. 
That, that's what I've been longing for my entire life. And so you chose to put your faith in Jesus, that he really was and is the Savior of the world. And you became a follower of Jesus. And you began to understand that my life is better and the lives of the people that I love and care for and who come in contact with me are better when I'm following Jesus because what it produces is beauty and blessing. This is what's happening here. A bunch of people are amazed and they put their faith in Jesus. But then we're told that not only are there those who are amazed, but Matthew says there's another group of people. Verse 24 says, but when the Pharisees heard it. Now, here come those Pharisees again. Uh, if you remember from last week, the Pharisees were the ultra-religious people. And it says that when the Pharisees, these religious people, heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. So, so get this. These guys look at Jesus they, they see him do all of the, they, in fact, they've been following Jesus, so they've seen him do more than this good thing. They've seen him do all of these good things, and their conclusion is, well, it's pretty obvious he must be working for Satan. I mean, that's interesting, right? Here's the thing. The first thing that I want to say about that, this, is, is this, is that and we talked a little bit about this last week, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But I, I think sometimes, if we're not careful, we can fall into the trap of thinking about life in such a way where, you know, if I'm, if I'm just a good person and I do good things, then the result will be that good things will happen to me. That it's this whole idea of love versus leverage. That if I do enough good things, then God will be obligated to, to make good things happen to me because he owes me. And, and here's the deal. Even when you take God out of the picture, uh, and this, this is a pretty common popular worldview. In fact, if you go to the lo local coffee shop or you head down to the local bar and you listen to the average Joe Lincolnite, you'll probably hear this philosophy. You'll see it on social media. But, but there's this common philosophy, take God clear out of the picture, that if you're just a good person and if you just do enough good, then the result will be well, good will come back to you. It, it's called karma, right? That, that, you know, you do your best because the universe always blesses people who do good. That if you just do good, you'll be blessed with goodness. So just be positive. Because a positive person, uh, positive things will happen for a positive person. And, and actually, you know, there, there is some truth in that. The Bible talks about that when you plant good seeds, that good fruit comes from good seeds. That you can't just run around doing bad things all the time and expect for good things to happen. And so there's a hint of truth in that. And, and the reality is that, um, and this is a greater reality, unfortunately, that a whole lot of Christians could probably learn something from that kind of thinking. Because the truth is, again, some Christians, I know never hear, but some Christians can be kind of negative, right? Have you ever, have you ever just run into a negative Christian, don't look at anybody. <laughs> and whatever you do, don't point at anybody. But come on. 
We've all run into those negative people who, who, who they claim to be followers of Jesus, but they're like, you know, it's like their spiritual gift, or they think their spiritual gift is to just point out uh, all of the negative things in the world. That they're just kind of, um, you know, they're kind of like Christian uh, Debbie Downers. You guys remember the, the old Saturday Night Live uh, sketch with Debbie Downer on it? And uh, she was the one who, you know, everybody would be sitting around the Thanksgiving table and talking about how thankful they are for things and thankful for the food. And all of a sudden it'll come to her and she'll be like, well, you know, they've just discovered that turkey and gravy is the leading cause of bowel cancer or something like that. You know, wah, wah, wah. Just Debbie Downer. And for some reason, that's how some Christians, again, nobody here, but some Christians tend to function, especially on, and I just keep beating this horse until it's dead, but especially on social media. And, uh, you know, we're just downers. And, and here, I want to just say this, and if you don't hear anything else, then, then this is probably what you need to hear, but, but just, I, I want to say this, sometimes the most spiritual thing that you can do when you're on social media and you see something that you don't agree with or you don't like or so, you know sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take your hands off the keyboard set the phone down set the tablet down take a deep breath and here I'm going to give you some really deep spiritual truth sometimes you just need to chill out you know take yeah we can clap for that it's true that that sometimes you just need to chill out because here's the deal as Christians, we ought to be not negative, we ought to be the most positive people on the planet. Regardless of what else is taking place in the world, regardless of what's happening politically or economically or socially, we have got the good news, right? They call it good news for a reason. We ought to act like we got good news sometimes. But we ought to be the most positive people on the planet. But, but here's, here's the larger point that I want to make about this particular verse and that we've got to understand this is that one of the things that this story reminds us of is that there are times when you do really good things. I, I mean, you just do positive stuff that brings blessing and beauty into the world and sometimes the result will not be positive. Sometimes the way people treat you will not be in a positive way. I mean, here's Jesus. I mean, he heals this guy. The guy can't see and he can't speak. And Jesus heals him. That's a good thing, right? This guy's possessed by a demon. Jesus delivers him from the demon. And instead of praising him, some of the people there, Matthew says, they actually turn on him and say, well, he must be from Satan. Kind of like, I don't know why I got Saturday Night Live on the brain. I'm thinking of the church lady now. It must be Satan, you know. <laughs> Listen, we, we got to understand, this is one of the realities of life, that doing good things does not always, always equate to good things happening to you. you know, ask the disciples about that. You know, they all eventually were martyred for their faith, Right? Ask many of our missionaries around the world who have endured great difficulty, all for the, the cause of the gospel, that sometimes you do good things and it doesn't always equate to good things happening to you. The truth is that sometimes 
you'll do really good things, the right things, and the result will be that people, instead of praising you, will actually turn on you. One of the things that's always, uh, probably not always, but for a number of years, has been on my heart is the need for racial reconciliation. And uh, so probably, I don't know, 20 years or so ago, Laura and I were living in the Kansas City area, and uh, I, I met a young man by the name of Carnell Washington, who was a, a, a black pastor in the inner city, and uh, Carnell and I developed a really close friendship, and we shared the same heart, and uh, we just really felt like that God birthed in us. We started doing these events that were focused on narrowing the racial divide, especially in the church, because we know that in the church, Sunday morning, right, is one of the most divided, uh, is one of the most segregated times in, in, our, in our world. And so we felt like, you know, we're part of the church. We, we, instead of trying to fix everybody else, how about we focus on the church? And so we started doing these events that were really focused on bridging the racial divide and bringing people together and seeking healing under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And uh, we did this event in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and uh, we, we knew nothing really about Tuscaloosa or Alabama or anything like that. It was the first time we'd ever been there. But we, we felt like that we were supposed to go to Tuscaloosa. And uh, we wound up bringing the largest black church in Tuscaloosa and the largest white church in Tuscaloosa together to sponsor this event. And uh, we didn't know it at the time. But nothing like this had ever happened in Tuscaloosa, ever. And so it became a big deal, way bigger than we thought it was going to be. All of the news stations showed up, and this was the first time in history this had ever happened, and it was really a cool event. The, the two worship pastors from each of the churches got together and collaborated, and they made this huge worship team that was mixed, and there was this beautiful music, and, and, and then Carnell preached this really powerful message, and at the end of the service, the entire front of the, the the sanctuary there was just filled with people who had come forward seeking Christ and uh, seeking to invite him into their lives and seeking forgiveness for their own prejudices and committing themselves to pursue reconciliation. It was just this beautiful, beautiful event that resulted in beauty and blessing. Hallelujah. For some people, it wasn't hallelujah. Actually, after the event, the pastor of the white church had nothing but complaints. The, the service lasted too long, and the music was too loud, and uh, Carnell didn't share enough of his testimony. I thought he was going to tell more of his story. Instead, he focused more on this reconciliation thing, and he, he complained to me and let me know how disappointed he was in us, and, and, and he complained. I listened to him, and I looked at him, and I was like, dude, what in the world is your problem? I was young, and I didn't have a filter on my mouth in those days, but <laughs> like I do now. And I was like, what is your problem? Did you miss what happened at the end of the service? I mean, where were you? Did you not see the result of what happened at the end of this service? It was crazy. And the event was supposed to be two nights. The second night, this pastor didn't even show up. And I share this with you to say this, is that sometimes you can do good things, things that bring beauty and blessing into the world, and there are times when people that you never expected would do this will actually turn on you. The Pharisees see this good thing that Jesus does. They're the religious people of all people. They're the ones looking for the Messiah. They're the ones who should have seen this and embraced it and loved what was happening 
And they're like, well, we think what's happening here is really of Satan. And in verse 25, Jesus gives this response. He says, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And so Jesus speaks to them. Again, we're becoming used to this. He uses analogy. He's speaking in the form of a parable. And this is a parable that they clearly would have understood. You know, some of the parables, they would, the, the disciples would come and say, what did you mean by that? This one is very clear. Jesus is like, if you're part of a kingdom, and in that kingdom, everybody is fighting against itself. Or in this kingdom, let's say you have two factions that are fighting against themselves, then the result is, we all know this because we all live in kingdoms, is that kingdom is not going to stand. Eventually, the kingdom will destroy itself. And, and then he says, in the same way, it's like that in a household, that if a husband and wife are constantly pulling against each other, and he's headed this way, and she's always headed this way, uh, the household is not going to stand. He says, in order for it to stand, there has to be unity. What Jesus is saying here is that this is true not only of kingdoms, and it's true not only of households, but it's true of any kind of organization. And as a church, the truth is we will not be effective in the mission that God has called us to do without unity. We need unity, right? We, we don't need division, especially we don't need division over non-essential things, which is what most churches fight over. They don't fight over the virgin birth. They don't fight over the existence of the Trinity. They don't fight over the incarnation of Jesus Christ. They fight over things that in the end is not going to amount to one person coming into the kingdom. Either way. I recently heard a story about a church where there were some people, this is a true story, but some people got mad. They didn't like a decision that was made by the leadership and you know, it was, it was a really important decision, one that I'm sure had a deep impact on people's eternal destiny. Um, you know, like the church put in gray park carpet and they wanted brown carpet. Or the church put in chairs instead of pews. You know, really important stuff that's going to have a deep eternal impact in people's lives. And so they got mad and they left the church. And instead of what they did was instead of going to another church and causing problems there because that's usually what happens right because people who are negative they're going to be negative here and they're going to be negative over there here you know it's here they're negative there they're negative everywhere they go they're negative you know there's we could do a song about that sometime but um but but instead of doing that what they decided to do was they decided that you know their spiritual contribution to the world was going to be that they were going to pick at that church in the parking lot every sunday for a year can you believe that? When I hear stuff like that, again, I'm like, are you kidding me? You, 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 uh, some people need to read their Bible. And then they need to get down on their knees and repent. I mean, we're living in a world full of broken, hurting people. And, and there are those who have decided that they're going to waste their time sitting in a parking lot picketing a church because of some detail that in the end isn't going to have any impact in the world whatsoever. Listen, I, I'm grateful that this is a unified church. 
I am. This is a unified church, and we're unified in the mission of connecting disconnected people to Jesus. Can we agree? Yeah, we ought to clap for that. Do we agree on every decision that's made? Probably not. But we're unified in the fact that the things are essential, the things that are make a difference, we are going to rally around those things, and we're not going to make a big deal over the things that aren't going to make a big difference. Pre- personal preference things. And I'm grateful for that, because the truth is, if we want to make a difference in our community, we have got to stay that way. Unified around the mission. We, we can't allow lesser issues to divide us because Jesus warns us a divided kingdom will not stand. So Jesus says, be unified. He goes on in verse 6. By, he kind of, now he switches gears a little bit and he appeals to their logic. He says, so guys, if Satan casts out Satan... That means he's divided against himself. I've already said a divided kingdom can't stand. So if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. So you tell me, how's that kingdom going to stand? How could I be doing that? In in other words, come on, guys. Use your brain here. Think about this for a moment. It ain't going to work. Why would Satan ever cast out Satan? And then in verse 27, he says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, this whole thing about the strong man can be a little bit, this is one of the more confusing parts of this particular uh, passage of Scripture. And, and again, here Jesus, he's, using a, he's speaking in parable, he's using analogy, and in this analogy, the strong man of the house is Satan. And what Jesus is describing here is that Jesus comes into the strong man's house, it, and, and he comes in like a thief. Jesus, in this case, is the thief, comes into the strong man's house, ties Satan up in order to steal all this stuff. And I love this. This is an, an awesome analogy. It, it's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Taken before, but Jesus is painting this picture like he's Liam Neeson in Taken. And if you haven't seen the, this story, it's a story. Liam Neeson is an ex-CIA agent, and uh, somebody kidnaps his daughter. And somehow Liam Neeson gets on the phone with the kidnappers, and he's like, and I wish I could do his voice because that's the coolest thing about it. But he's like, if you're looking, if you're looking for ransom. Oh, that was pretty good. <laughs> I like If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have is a particular set of skills, a set of skills that bring nightmares to people like you. And the guys are like, yeah. Thank you. That's my Liam Neeson. I don't have the Scottish accent, but, but, but so he, he, he does it. So, and then Liam Neeson threatens them, and then he goes and like breaks their faces and rescues the daughters, and it's a great movie. And, and Jesus is painting this picture that he's kind of like that, that Satan is the strong man. In other words, he's the one who has the power. And he has us in captivity. He, we're held hostage. 
And because of our sins, we're blind, our hearts are far from God, we're caught up in, in hurt and addictions and bitterness, and we're held captive. And, and Jesus bursts in with the kingdom. There, there's a new kingdom, a new power that has come. He's got a special set of skills. And Jesus binds up Satan through the cross. And in the resurrection, he says to us, the strong man is bound. You are now free. I've set you free from the clutches of these bad guys. <laughs> this is the beautiful message of the gospel for us. So, so for those of us, this is why it's called good news, because for those who are caught in sin, who are addicted to things, who think they'll never be free, what you need to understand this morning, maybe this is why you came here today or why you're watching online, is that Jesus has already defeated sin. He bound the strong man. He defeated Satan. He defeated death. He defeated hell and the grave, and he has set you free. Now, so the question becomes this. If Jesus has done all that, the only question left is, will you receive it? Will you receive what, what Jesus has done? Jesus has already plundered the, the strong man. He's already destroyed him for you. He's already come in and tied him up and said, hey, I've already won the victory for you. All you have to do is receive it. Now, here's the problem. The problem is, is that salvation requires humility. And the problem with the gospel is, is that some of us don't want to benefit from the work that somebody else has done because we don't have humility. This is why, um, you know, places like Disney have said, you know, we're probably not going to do many more traditional princess movies. Even though, because, even though they've made billions of dollars off of movies like Cinderella and Snow White and Rapunzel, all those princess stories, they've said, we're not going to do many more of those stories because, because we live in a day and an age where it's not PC for a woman to be saved by a man. We don't like that. And the truth is, this is not a man-woman issue. The truth is, it's way a bigger, broader cultural issue that rather than being saved, we would much rather be our own hero. We, we, we don't want to be saved by somebody else. We want to tell stories where we saved ourselves, where we're the hero. And Jesus is like, listen, the only way into the kingdom is you cannot save yourself. The only way into the kingdom is by letting me come in and tie up the strong man for you. But here's the deal. You do play a role in this, and that is you've got to be willing to be set free. You've got to be willing to be set free. Because there's only two ways this works. You either accept my offer to save you, or you don't. You either step into my freedom and salvation, or you don't. You stay in captivity. Verse 30, Jesus says this, and this is strong. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is there is no such thing as neutrality when it comes to me. You can't have one foot in the kingdom 
and, a, and, and another foot in another kingdom. You, you can't have this foot in my kingdom and this foot in your own kingdom. You can't have this foot in my kingdom and this foot in the king, a political kingdom. You can't have this foot in my kingdom and this foot in any other kingdom. There's no neutral position with Jesus. There's either you love him and you receive him, all of him, everything, everything he said, everything he commands, you either receive all of that or you reject him. That's the point. Jesus used a strong language. He said, you either love me or you hate me. That you're, you're either all in or you're all out. That there's no, you know, there's no, well, and I hear this a lot, you know, I mean, Jesus, Jesus, I think Jesus was a good guy, and I believe, you know, I, I believe, I believe this, and I believe this, and I believe this, but I don't really believe that. No. Jesus says, it's everything, or it's nothing. It, it, it's, it's all or nothing. You're either for me, or against me. You're either gathering with me, in other words, you're either bringing blessing and beauty into the world, or you're scattering, you're creating chaos. There's, there's, there's no neutrality. The, the, you can't have a divided kingdom. You're either for me or against me. Verse 31, he says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Now, now again, this is a passage of Scripture that a lot of us who grew up in the church, who have read this passage of Scripture, it's confused even us. You know, there, there's this thought, and I remember when I was a kid and I heard this passage of Scripture, the first thought in my mind was like, oh no, did I do the unforgivable sin and now I can't be forgiven, right? That's the thought that comes into our minds. Is there, there's this unpardonable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and the question is, have I done something or can I do something so wicked and so evil that I actually fall outside God's ability or his willingness to forgive me? Can I do something that God will not forgive, right? This is the question that's here. And so, so first, let, let's focus on the good news. Because all of us have the tendency to immediately go to the second half of that verse and again go, oh my goodness, there's something that we can do that God will not or cannot forgive. And, and we miss out on the first half, which the first half is the beautiful part. The first half, Jesus says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. Let, 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 let's just allow ourselves to get blown away by that. Jesus says every sin, every blasphemy will be forgiven. So, so what sin and what blasphemy will be forgiven? Every sin. I mean, this, this is, you read through Scripture, and you, we discover this is who God is. He's a forgiving God. He forgives people's sins. That's why he sent Jesus, to forgive us our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And he, it says he'll forgive every sin. I think about, you know, I think about Peter. Peter, I think, in my mind, Peter committed one of the worst sins that you could commit. He turned his back on Jesus in Jesus' worst moment. Jesus is going to the cross. He's about, he's about, getting ready to be crucified for Peter's sin. 
And Peter's in the courtyard, and people say, hey, that's your buddy, right? And Peter's like, I don't even know that guy. <laughs> what, what did Jesus do immediately after the resurrection as he seeks Peter out and he forgives him, right? This passage of Scripture says that every sin will be forgiven. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. All of them, there's nothing that he won't forgive. So what in the world is up with the second half of this verse? What is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that will not be forgiven? What Jesus is talking about here is that there is kind of a, an inward sin, a, a kind of a posture towards God. I think that's a better explanation of it. A posture towards God that says, God, I know what you've done, but I don't care. I do not want your forgiveness. I don't want to receive what you've done for me. And what Jesus is saying here, and we've got to remember who he's talking to. What, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, if you stay in that posture, if you remain in that posture, in the end, you will not be forgiven. I think the best way I can illustrate what I'm talking about is like this, and uh, Laura, Laura will testify to this. But... Um, in the past, I've had kind of a natural proclivity to um, maybe drive just a little bit faster than I'm supposed to drive. And it was in the past, you know, it's not, um, I, I probably shouldn't be confessing that because um, we have police officers that attend Connecting Point Church and we love our police officers and uh, we're grateful for them. And so I want you to know this was way in the past, like a couple of years ago. And uh, Laura and I, a couple of years ago, we were actually on a trip, and we were way out in western Kansas, or kind of northwest Kansas. And uh, if you've ever been out in northwest Kansas, there is absolutely nothing out there. And so we were driving down this two-lane highway, and I mean, there's... there's there's more cows than people out there, and it's these rolling kind of hills, and, and, and we're out there, and, and uh, oh, I should have said this earlier, that um, while I have a natural proclivity to sometimes drive a little faster than I'm supposed to, my wife has a natural proclivity to let me know that. Um, and so, um, so anyway, so we're driving along on this desolate highway in western Kansas and hadn't seen a car for miles and miles and miles. And, and I'm not going to lie, you know, I'm going just a little bit faster than the speed limit. And I knew I was going faster than the speed limit uh, because Laura had told me I was. And my, my response to her was like, come on, you know, we're out in the middle of nowhere, and I'm not going that fast, and I want to get home, and, and so I justified it, and, uh, and I no more than got those words out of my mouth when I looked up over the hill ahead of me, and here comes a county sheriff. And um, when I saw the deputy, I did exactly what, you know what the instinct is when you see the cops coming, you step on the brake real quick, right? So now... I'm going way under the speed limit. <clears throat> I look over at Lauren. She's not impressed. Um, and apparently the officer was not impressed either because he spun around, lights on, pulled me over. And he, he walks up to the car and uh, he, he, you know, he does the deal, license and registration. And he's like, Mr. Atterbury, the reason I pulled you over is because you're going a little bit faster than you should be going. And we've had some accidents out on this road. And we just want to keep you safe. And I'm thinking, man, this guy is going to nail me. I mean, he caught me dead to rights. I'm guilty. I did it. I know I did it. He knows I did it. I deserve a ticket. But in this moment of grace, 
He says, I'm not going to give you a ticket. I deserved it. I did it. Caught red-handed. And in this moment of grace, he says, I'm not going to give you a ticket. Just slow it down. Stay safe. And have a nice day. Now, in that moment, how crazy would I have been if I had looked that officer in the eye and say, I don't want your grace. Book me. <laughs> I did it. Crazy, right? Why would we do that with Jesus? That's just a ticket. We're talking about our eternal destiny. And so, so why would we look at Jesus? He's offering us grace. He's offering us mercy. He's offering us forgiveness. And, and why, why would we go, I don't want any part of your grace. I don't want any part of your favor. I don't care what your offer is. I'm not going to apply this thing to my life that you have offered to me. That would be absolutely crazy, right? This is what Jesus is talking about. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit it's not an issue of that there is some sin that is so grievous, so terrible, that God is either unwilling or unable to forgive it. But rather, what makes it unforgivable is when we refuse to acknowledge it as sin. My life, my choices, I get to do what I want to do. And Jesus is standing there offering us forgiveness and we take a posture I don't want what you've offered to me you, you see it's the Holy Spirit that, that his job he convicts us of our sin there's a difference between conviction and condemnation the Bible says there's no condemnation in Christ. The enemy condemns us. The enemy is, you're a loser. You're a failure. You'll never be anything. You'll never amount to anything. You never can get it right. You blew it. That's condemnation. Conviction is, hey, there's something in your life that is preventing you from being all that I created you to be. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, and he points us to truth. And he draws us to Christ so that we can experience grace and mercy and we can become everything that he created us to be. And when we turn our back on that and we refuse to receive it, that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That if we remain in that posture, you know, the Holy Spirit is always calling and always knocking. In fact, the, the Bible talks about that the, the Holy Spirit is like a still, small voice that convicts us of sin, that reveals to us the difference between right and wrong. And, and it's the Holy Spirit that draws us to forgiveness, and, and the Holy Spirit reveals truth. And, 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 and understand, we, we got to understand again who Jesus is talking to. This, this, these are the Pharisees. These are the guys who had seen the truth over and over and over again. They'd seen Jesus demonstrate over and over and over again who he is. He's a healer. He's a deliverer. He does these miraculous things. He gives value to those that nobody else gives value to. He restores. He brings beauty and he brings blessing into the world. And so they had seen Jesus do all of these things. They watched him cast out demons. They'd seen him forgive sin and restore broken lives. They, they heard him, him claim again and again and again that I am, I am who I am. I am indeed the Son of God. 
And yet over and over and over again, they chose to oppose him and reject and ignore the truth. And in rejecting him, they had set themselves up in direct opposition to him. And so what Jesus is saying to them is he's saying, listen, your persistent rebellion your, your continual denial of me, your constant refusal to humble yourself and repent of your sin is putting yourselves dangerously close to a place of permanent condemnation. You see, there comes a point when we shut out the Holy Spirit so often, we, we've had the truth revealed and we're extended grace and we refuse it and ignore it and shut the Holy Spirit out. And when we do that so often, eventually there is a danger that we will get close to the place where our hearts become so hardened that we cannot hear his voice anymore. It's not that he's not speaking. It's not that he's not calling. In fact, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says this. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And, and, and so here's the, the warning for us this morning. I want to have the band come and help me as we close. But I'm, I just want to give you this warning and then I'm going to pray for us and we're going to be done. The warning for us is this. Whenever you begin to feel anything in the realm of conviction, it's not intended to condemn you. It's, in, it's intended to heal you. So whenever you feel anything in the realm of conviction, what you need to understand is that is Jesus standing at the door and he's knocking. For those of you who are not Christ followers yet and you haven't made that commitment yet, if you're here this morning, you're watching online and you're starting to kind of feel inside that, and maybe wonder, you know, maybe this thing might be true. Maybe Jesus really does care about me and maybe he really does have a plan for my life. I just want to warn you, when you begin to feel that, that is Jesus knocking. That is Jesus offering you grace. That is Jesus offering you undeserved favor. That is Jesus offering you forgiveness and freedom and transformation. He's knocking. I want to caution you this morning when you feel that. Whatever you do, don't ignore it. Don't, 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 don't ignore it because the truth is, if you continue to ignore it, there may come a day when you can no longer even hear it. And it's not an issue, again, of Jesus not knocking. It's an issue of us hardening our hearts to the point where we can't hear his knocking anymore. Jesus never stops knocking. But there can come a point where we refuse and rebel and ignore so often that we just can't hear him anymore and the sad thing is is that when that happens we'll miss out on his grace we'll miss out on his mercy we'll miss out on his forgiveness that's a tragedy this is what Jesus is saying so here's what I want to do as we close and wrap up our time this morning is I just want to pray for you this morning and if you're in that place where 
You just really sense, okay, Jesus is knocking. I feel this tug. I feel this sense. And I just want to pray with you this morning. I want to just give you an opportunity to respond to that. And I want to invite you right where you're at, in the quietness of your own heart, to just pray this simple little prayer. Jesus, I receive you. Jesus, I open my heart to you. I'm opening the door today. I know that I need a Savior. I know that I need you. I'm a sinner and I need you. Come in today. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, that if we open the door, he's promised that he will come in and he'll He'll eat with us. He'll have this relationship with us. He'll dwell within us. And so if you prayed that prayer this morning, in faith, that's exactly what's happened. So Father, we thank you for that. This morning, Lord, I pray that wherever we're at on our journey, that there are some who just, for the very first time, have opened their hearts to you invited you in. We're so thankful for that this morning. There, there may be some others of us who, um, Father, your Holy Spirit, you always continue to transform us, to reveal things in our hearts that maybe they're attitudes or ideas or behaviors or compulsions, addictions that you just want to deal with because they're not something that bring beauty and blessing into our lives or the lives of other people. That's what you're all about. So this morning, Father, there may be some of us who maybe that prayer we just prayed a moment ago have prayed years ago, but this morning you brought something to mind that they've held on to. Today, we just want to let that go, lift it up to you. Your grace and your mercy, it never ends. Your offer to redeem and restore, it's a a lifelong offer to us that you continue to remake us into what you want us to be so that someday will fully be in your likeness. and We know that will happen when we see you face to face. And in the meantime, you're just sanctifying us and working on us. And so I pray that today. And God, my prayer for us as a church, I pray this over myself and I pray for over every single person who's here this morning that claims to be a follower of you. I pray that you would help us to be intentional. I pray that you would Uh, help us to be very sensitive in the world that we live in, to be people who are continually bringing beauty and blessing into the world. The people we come in contact with, God, those who may even be skeptical because they've encountered Christians who are negative and hypocritical and judgmental and represent everything that is, is total opposite of who you were, Jesus. I pray that even when we have those encounters, that there would be such a beauty and grace in us that we would just react in such love that it might even point them to you. <laughs> to say, oh, if, you know, I, I remember for me, Jesus, that when I finally figured out, oh, this is what following you is really all about. I could buy into that. <laughs> we just want a bunch of people to experience that. So I pray that over us today as we go throughout our week and 
as we go to our various places. And we're going to ask all of these things in the one whose kingdom we are united in. (laughs) Don't want to live in a divided kingdom. It's your kingdom come. Your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.